This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Robbins and Meyer is not usually scrupulously following the ins and outs of Congress. He's a climate reporter. But this weekend, with the Democrats' big budget reconciliation bill, finally snaking its way through the Senate, he decided he'd do a little moonlighting on Capitol Hill. I would describe the atmosphere as almost precisely like college library during finals week. It was literal moonlighting for Rob because he was there when voting began on Saturday. And then he stayed until the bill passed the next day. You know, people are there overnight. You look around, you can tell there are people who do this every time. It's your first time. The sun rises much sooner than you expect. When you finally do get to take a nap, 90 minutes has passed without you realizing it. It sounds painful. It sounds like a painful process after a painful year. Yes. And so when it finally came time to pass the legislation, it was kind of, wow, they're really, they're really doing it. Wow. Rob knew this was the final vote because of how the vibe in the room suddenly shifted. Republicans were ready to get out of there. They gave the bill a thumbs down. Then they all like stand up, pick up their bags. It was almost like watching people like deplane, you know, <laughs> with all their carry on bags. So there was no mistaking how partisan this was. No, not at all. Democrats, on the other hand, they were ready to relish their success. And the bill, as amended, is passed. <laughs> you know, Senator Ryan Schatz from Hawaii teared up on the floor and then, and then teared up again during questions and actually excused himself from interviews at the end. Climate policy has been a particular focus for him. A number of senators brought their climate staff onto the floor and were sitting next to them. You know, and these are people who basically spent a decade of their life in some cases or, or longer researching, drafting, and negotiating what these policies that I think any rational assessment would have said there was a very low chance of ever passing. That sounds emotional. Yeah, it was it was emotional. Today on the show, why did passing this essential climate bill take so long? And when will the rest of us know if this legislation is working? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Part of why this climate bill is so significant is that the U.S. has historically dragged its feet when it comes to addressing climate change. We are the world's number one polluter, historically speaking, and we've got the second biggest annual carbon footprint. President Biden recommitted the country to the Paris Climate Accords after President Trump pulled out of them. But we're a long way from our goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by a quarter before 2025. And if you look at the U.S.'s poor environmental track record, one thing becomes clear. The Senate has had a big role to play. What is kind of shocking when you look at U.S. climate policy is like how much the Senate has forced every other body to work around it. And how much, so much climate policy has basically been formulated on the assumption that you could not get the Senate to do anything. Under George H.W. Bush, the Senate did join the UN Conference of the Parties on Climate Change. But that was a, it was a treaty. That's what ultimately gave rise to the Paris Agreement. But it was non-binding. It didn't force the U.S. to do anything. Since then, Bill Clinton tried to pass an energy tax that would have functioned a little bit like a carbon tax and would have definitely reduced carbon emissions In 1992, it passed in the House. It didn't pass in the Senate. When the Kyoto Protocol, the first climate treaty, was negotiated in the 1990s, the Senate passed unanimously a non-binding resolution basically saying the U.S. will never join the Kyoto Protocol. In the early 2000s, there were a number of kind of bipartisan climate bills that were meant to start getting a coalition together. One of the biggest was McCain-Lieberman, which would have established like a market for trading the right to emit carbon. And McCain and Lieberman means it's bipartisan. It's a Republican, it's a Democrat. Yeah, exactly. John McCain, Republican, Joe Lieberman, Democrat. That didn't go anywhere in the Senate. In 2009, Obama's climate bill, which also would have established the market and also would have passed a ton of additional kind of green industrial policy that is now forgotten, passed in the House, didn't pass in the Senate. And then there were kind of feudal efforts to get something through the Senate. They all failed. So the fact that something just did pass, does it mean that the Senate has somehow fixed itself? Or is it just that climate change has gotten so bad that someone had to do something? I think when you look at the history of this, you would say, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, the Senate did not take action on climate change because the Senate is tilted toward rural states. And there was a bipartisan rural slash like kind of oil state interest in not doing climate policy. Now, climate policy is much more partisan. And the Senate has only managed to fix itself this time because, to be very blunt, there were 50 Democrats and the vice president in the Senate and they could get something through. But anyone who's been following this process, I think, knows just how much of a mess it's been and how unlikely it was and how like completely contingent it was. <laughs> and I do think, to your question, that part of this is like we didn't have the same kind of wildfires that we had in 2009 or in 1993 that we have now in England, two weeks ago, there was a heat wave so hot that it melted the tarmac. You know, they couldn't run parts of the Tour de France because the road was melting. This is just a very different issue now and a much more immediate issue now for people than it was then. Let's talk about the bill itself. The bill calls for $369 billion in clean energy incentives. So what does that get us? The bill is actually kind of, in an almost astonishing way, tries to touch on so many parts of the economy that I think it has been hard for folks to describe, like for reporters to describe. Like you get a rebate, you get a rebate, you get a rebate. (laughs) Kind of every rebate is designed in an interesting way. The bill kind of has like three parts. 
The first is it has a ton of different tax credits and subsidies. Some of those tax credits are for companies. They're meant to encourage, for example, clean electricity production. Basically, if you produce zero-carbon electricity, the government will give you a number of different ways to subsidize that activity, and you get to choose the one that's best for you. If you're a company working on carbon capture, the government will pay you $185 for every ton of carbon you take out of the atmosphere. If you're an individual, you can now take advantage of a tax credit to buy a new electric vehicle, and that tax credit will kick in at the dealership. And so it will come for the first time ever, This the, new, the EV tax credit, because we've had one in the past, but this now will be larger, and it will take effect at the dealership. It will actually knock money off the sticker price. It's like a coupon. It's like a coupon, and it's actually a big deal for lower-income people because previously you had to have enough tax liability for your EV tax credit to like knock it out. Now it will just come off the sticker price. If I put a solar panel on my roof, am I getting a tax credit? Yep, yep. If you retrofit your house to be more energy efficient and you show kind of in a computer model that you reduced your energy use in your house by more than 20%, the government will cover half the cost of your retrofit up to $2,000. If you're a landlord or a developer and you retrofit a multifamily unit in a low-income area, and you're shown to reduce your energy use by 15% or more for the whole building, the government will cover 80% of the cost of the retrofit. Wow. And it could actually cover more because of the way the subsidy is structured. Democrats are saying this is going to slash carbon emissions by 40%. Is that legit? There have been three different independent studies at this point, kind of using slightly different models of the energy economy. And it's about 35 to kind of 43% is where most of them wind up. So it does seem like this is going to significantly reduce emissions. And I think more importantly, kind of in almost any world, we're going to be closer and significantly closer, like two thirds of the way closer to meeting our 2030 goal under the Paris Agreement with this bill than we would be without it. So that's significant. Yeah, it's a real big deal. (laughs) And the bill, of course, it isn't just about climate. It's also about health care, prescription drug costs. And of course, Joe Manchin renamed it the Inflation Reduction Act. So tell me a little bit briefly about what else this big bill does. First of all, it, it raises taxes on the rich and on companies. It collects more in taxes than it spends. And the second thing is kind of on health care. The bill extends the subsidies for Obamacare plans to make them more affordable. There's kind of been this gap in the past between folks who don't quite qualify for Medicaid but who can't afford Obamacare plans. The government started subsidizing their health care plans during the pandemic. It has now extended those subsidies till 2025. And also for the first time ever, the government and Medicare and Medicaid specifically will negotiate the prices of the highest, most expensive drugs. And that's one of the ways the bill pays for itself, right? It is. I think that's maybe one of the largest pay-fors. I should be clear that I think this bill does several other things, but climate won. And when push came to shove, you know, Democrats decided that their big legislative push in the year 2022 was going to be to get climate policy across the finish line. When we come back, getting Senator Joe Manchin to vote for this bill required making big concessions to the fossil fuel industry. Rob's going to explain why he's fine with that.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now that Democrats are busy taking their victory lap in the wake of this bill's passage, it's easy to forget how touch-and-go things were for a while. That's thanks to one guy, Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia. Back in December, after months of debate, Manchin pulled out of what was then known as Build Back Better. That touched off a round of intensely personal negotiations with Senator Chuck Schumer. But a few weeks back, Manchin pulled out again, citing inflation concerns. Finally, in just the last few days, Manchin got on board for a price. There's two different big concessions that Joe Manchin got. The first now is that whenever the government leases land or its offshore waters to renewable companies, it has to make another lease offering to oil and gas companies. And is that lease like a forever lease? Like <laughs> no backseas? That lease is long enough that the company can make use of the resource under the ground. What do you make of that? I think it is a real concession that climate advocates made to Manchin, and it is a bit of a gamble. That said, all this requirement says is that the government has to offer the leases. It doesn't say that they have to be bought. Not all leases that are offered by the government are actually purchased by oil companies. And an even smaller number of leases that are purchased are actually exploited. That's an interesting distinction to make. And I was thinking of you when I heard about all of the fossil fuel concessions in this bill, because a little while back you came on the show and you basically made the argument that the U.S. needed to subsidize the fossil fuel industry as we transition to cleaner energy. The argument being that this is kind of the last gasp of dirty energy and powering our lives can't become so, so expensive at this point. It won't work for anyone. And so you need to boost fossil fuels while also investing a lot in renewables. Is that what this bill is doing? Yes, I think it is. What was clear last time I came on the show was that the energy system was in crisis. And it was in crisis not only because Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent sanctions had taken a large amount of oil supply offline, thus sending oil prices very high globally. It was also in crisis because the oil companies are really not sure how to plan for the future. And for the first time ever in their existence as companies, they are more worried about forward demand than they are about forward supply. They're more worried that they are going to produce oil that nobody's going to want to buy and they're going to lose money rather than they're going to run out of oil to produce. 
And because they're worried that nobody's going to buy their oil, they're very skittish to make investments. And so the U.S. was going to have to pass a policy at some point under this Senate, under a future Senate. (laughs) And whatever party could do it was going to win the spoils, you know, of getting their chosen policy across the line. So this is giving oil companies a roadmap. It is. It is. And I would say something else, too. It's giving the whole economy a roadmap. It's giving Amazon and UPS and FedEx, when they start thinking about how they're going to buy trucks, it gives them a roadmap. It gives them certainty to do the math on, you know, can they buy electric trucks? Can they buy hydrogen-powered trucks? And I actually think maybe the biggest Inflation Reduction Act (laughs) of the Inflation Reduction Act is that it's going to subsidize a ton of new electricity generation that's zero carbon and doesn't require natural gas to come online, which will push down our electricity prices when they would otherwise be going up because our natural gas would kind of be flowing abroad. Okay, so there are some grumpy progressives online who are kvetching about this bill and basically saying it doesn't do enough to lean on the fossil fuel industry and keep them from doing what they're doing. What would you say to someone like that who's kind of pissed? (laughs) I see two different groups here. The first are there are some folks involved in the environmental justice movement who look at some of the Manchin concessions and especially look at this permitting bill that Manchin has said that as part of his deal, you know, is going to get taken up later this year by the Senate, but we really don't quite know what's going to be in that bill yet. And they say, this is just going to create new sacrifice zones in the United States. This is going to force more people to live near oil and gas. Yeah, they think of it as a poison pill. Yeah, exactly. Democrats would respond by saying, look, we have these massive environmental justice block grants in the bill. This is the largest investment in environmental justice ever. This is what compromise looks like. And by the way, you may be unhappy to live next to a fossil fuel facility, but a lot of your neighbors actually work there. And so they, we have to think about the politics of them too. But that is a criticism of the bill that I think does follow through. Now, I would also say that there are huge costs to living near a fossil fuel facility. It's quite poisonous. People develop cancer. It's very, very bad. You said there were two groups of people. Who's the second group? There's another group of people which I have a lot less of (laughs) tolerance for, which are folks who say, look, we're only going to get to 40% emissions reductions under this bill compared to our all-time high. To them, do you say, how about 0%? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to them, I say, compare that to the status quo. The modeled effect of this bill is larger than any single climate policy previously passed in the United States. The median modeling estimate of this bill is that the U.S. is going to roughly double its pace of decarbonization. I don't have a lot of respect for people who say we're yelling at Biden three weeks ago to declare a climate emergency, a policy that would have reduced emissions very little, and are now upset that this bill only gets us to 40% emission reductions below their all-time high. Take the W. Not, Not only take the W, but like... What we care about here is carbon. (laughs) Like, we care about cutting carbon. That is what climate change is about. We care about cutting carbon from the U.S. and making clean energy cheap so that the rest of the world can decarbonize. And the bill does both. When I look at the bill, I feel like I'm perennially discovering policies that I am astounded are about to be law or are on the verge of being law in the United States. Just policies that I never thought we would ever see in the U.S. are about to be law and It's going to change the position of the U.S. from 
being the laggard on climate change and the laggard, if not the active antagonist on climate change for the past 30 years, to actually having a more aggressive climate policy. How will you personally judge if this legislation is working? Like, what are you going to keep your eye on in the next few years? Hmm, great question. Um, Three things. Um, Are U.S. emissions coming down? I would say by 25 or 26, we should have a sense of whether the bill is actually starting to drive down U.S. emissions. The second thing is, are consumer adoption of climate tech going up? Are we going to start seeing that number keep going up? And, you know, what would really be a good sign is that there's some kind of inflection as these subsidies keep kicking in. And the last thing is, are we seeing political coalitions change due to the policies in this bill? So the level of industrial policy in this bill is going to create very big companies. It's going to create very strong unions. It's going to create workers who are going to owe their whole livelihoods to this piece of legislation. If it works, you would start to expect to see those people kind of show up in politics, right? To see them drive further decarbonization. And you could even get kind of a corporate decarbonization coalition going. Because they want to keep their jobs. Because they want to keep their jobs. Yeah, exactly. I think to see that effect happen in the U.S., the political economy of the United States change to shift in a more decarbonizing, friendly way, that would be my last criteria. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's quite a time. Robinson Meyer is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He also writes the newsletter The Weekly Planet. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, Madeline Ducharme, and Mary Wilson. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Rubinova and Jared Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.